Now, I'm sure you've all heard this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, if I asked you, what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? That's what's behind me, the kingdom of God. I wonder how you would answer that. Do you know what it means to seek first the kingdom of God? What does that mean? Well, we live in a democratic society. And so kings and kingdoms are a little bit foreign to us. We can look at other countries like England and we can see, well, some of that still remains and in other countries it does. But kings and kingdoms is what the ancient world only knew. For every land there was a king and there was a kingdom and you pretty much obeyed what the king said. And even in the first century context when Jesus lived, there were the Caesars and they were the kings. They were the leaders. There were pharaohs in Egypt. There were kings in, in Babylon and uh, Medo-Persia and on down the line. And now at the time that Jesus is living, there are what is called the Caesars. And the Caesars wanted to be called what? Lord. In fact, the Christians got in trouble for not saying Caesar is Lord. They would say Jesus is Lord. And it got them in trouble. You and I as Christians, this is what we say. And here's another way to say it. We say Jesus is my king. Jesus is my Lord. They're really synonymous terms. And so... As a Christian, what should really be driving your life is that you have decided to make Jesus Lord of your life, your king, your master. What he says goes. Recently, I ran into a young lady and I happened to be at a gas station and we had gotten in a little conversation about the Lord. And I asked her if she was a Christian and she said, I'm spiritual. And I said, so what exactly does that mean? Are you familiar with the Bible? Are you familiar with the Christian faith? And she said, oh, yes, I, I, I kind of grew up in the church. And here's the sense that I got. See if you've ever been here. The sense that I got is by saying that she was spiritual and not a Christian, she could decide what it meant to be spiritual. And here's where I'm going with this. And this is what I said to her. I said, look, God has things that he says are right and wrong. When you say I'm spiritual, what does that really mean? Are you defining what it means to be spiritual? Or are you willing to follow the one who said I am king of kings and lord of lords? Are you willing to do it his way or your way? And the sense that I got, and I get this quite often when I talk to people, is she wanted to pick and choose what she wanted to do. So I'm spiritual as I define what spirituality is. Look, if Jesus is your king, he defines your spirituality. That's, that's how it rolls, folks. There are a lot of people in our country right now that want to define their own rules. That's where we are today. We're not living in many ways, even as a Christian church, and I'm talking about the professing church in America and around the world, as though Jesus truly was our king. So we start the book of 2 Samuel with these words. Now it came about, 2 Samuel 1.1, it came about after the death of Saul when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites that David remained two days in Ziklag. Now the book of 2 Samuel starts with after the death of Saul. What kind of king was Saul? Well, he started out with great promise. His name literally means asked for. 
And he is what the people asked for. They wanted a king. Remember they came to Samuel and they said, we want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. And Samuel was upset, the prophet of Israel. And he came to God and God said, don't be upset. Give the people what they want for they haven't rejected you. They've what? Rejected me from being king over them. That's what's happened here. So give them what they asked for. The name Saul means asked for. Sometimes when you get what you asked for, <laughs> it's not great. We ask the Lord for certain things and sometimes he says no or wait and we can whine like little babies. I want it, I want it now, I want it now. And God says, wait, this is not the best thing for you. Am I your king? Are you my servant? One of the images of the idea of a Christian is when you come before a king, what do you do? You bow. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I ask you, is he your king? Every day, you and I have to decide who our king is. Will you be the captain of your own ship? Will you let the God of this world decide what you're going to do this day? Or is King Jesus going to be the one who dictates what you do? Jesus talked a lot about coming into the kingdom of God. And notice there's the death of Saul and the rising up of David. And Saul was tall and handsome. He was head and shoulders above the rest. He looked kingly. He looked like the right guy, the right choice. But he was what the people asked for. Technically, he wasn't God's choice because God chose a man after what? His own heart. That's what David was. Now, we all know that David was not perfect. We just talked about the story of Bathsheba. But David had the heart of God. He was willing to let God lead him to lead the nation. He was known as the sweet psalmist of Israel. Saul, the number one problem with Saul, what got Saul in trouble was one word, disobedience. He did not follow God. He did not do what God said. And eventually it cost Saul everything. We find this sad scene when Saul is wondering what to do and the Philistines are mounting garrisons against him. He ends up going to a witch, remember? The medium at Endor. And he had kicked all the witches out. But then he, he's trying to find out what to do and he's desperate. God's not responding to him because Saul's heart is not right. And he goes to this witch at Endor. And there she is. And all of a sudden Samuel comes up. Do you remember this? Some people say, was it really Samuel? Oh, I think it was really Samuel. I think God allowed it. I think the medium was probably as shocked as anybody to realize that this had happened. Maybe it had never happened before. Maybe she re responded like Whoopi Goldberg in the movie Ghost. You remember? I don't know what's going on around here. Movie's not theologically correct, but anyway. And it was Samuel. And remember, Samuel said to Saul, why do you trouble me? Why did you bring me up? I don't know what to do. God's not talking to me anymore. And, and Samuel says, it's because you become God's enemy. And he goes, I'll tell you what, here's what's going to happen. Tomorrow, you and your sons are going to be with me. You want a prophecy? You want a word? Here it is. You're going to die tomorrow on the battlefield. Saul didn't even want to eat anything. He was on the ground wondering what to do. The medium had to convince him to eat a meal. And the 
the end of the book of 1 Samuel ends with the death of Saul. He's actually wounded on the battlefield. He gets hit by the archers and he ends up dying. And the account in 1 Samuel 31 says he commits suicide. That he's hit by the archers, apparently mortally wounded, and he falls on his sword. Falling on your sword has become a metaphor in our culture for what? Taking ownership, admitting you were wrong, saying, I need God, I need help. I, I, sometimes you have to fall on your sword in life and say, I made a mistake, I said the wrong thing. Had Saul metaphorically fallen on his sword earlier, he would have been in good shape. But he ran and he was disobedient and he paid the ultimate price. And it wasn't only him. His sons died with him. And one son in particular, whose name was Jonathan. And Jonathan was very precious to David. They had a covenant, uh, a friendship, a bond of warriors. They had, they had agreed to be good to one another's families. Jonathan had divested himself of the royal garments in a, in a beautiful picture in 1 Samuel and given them to David. He, he was next in line for the throne, but he knew that he wasn't the man that David was. There was a loyal friendship. And Saul, you know, when you think of Saul, verse 1, after the death of Saul, what do you think of? You probably think of failure. You probably think of a man who came short of all that he could have been. This is what the kingdom of God's about. It's about whether or not you want to follow the king or not. Do you know that only two men of the whole generation of Israel went into the promised land? Not even Moses made it. You remember the two men that made it, Joshua and Caleb? Do you know why they made it? Because the Bible says they followed the Lord fully. That's our problem, isn't it? It's hard in our culture with our flesh and the world and the devil to follow the Lord fully. But the kingdom of God is about a decision that you and I need to make as to who we're going to follow. Are we going to follow the Lord fully or not? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. One writer says, David, as we transition from Saul to David, is one of the most important figures of world history. He has captured the imagination of great artists, sculptors, and writers. A large part of the reason for this is the remarkable account of his life and reign found in 1 and 2 Samuel. The story is captivating. In one of the world's finest pieces of narrative literature, the greatness and the weaknesses of this man's life are portrayed in vivid and gripping detail. I was thinking, what would it be like to know that a, an account of your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, was going to be recorded for future generations? And I'm talking about warts and all. I'm talking about not just your good times, not just your great decisions, not just your spiritual moments, but your moments of weakness. Your worst mistake on display for the next hundred generations should the Lord tarry. How would you feel about that? Would you want to be, have final control over edits? Can I get a witness? I would. <laughs> Can we take that part out? That doesn't sound so good. Right? But David's life is on display for all to see. And you know, our lives... The Bible says, are naked and open before the one to whom we must give an account. In heaven, there are books. One day, the books are going to be opened. And we're not going to be judged for our sin, but the good, the bad, and the ugly, if we're, we're Christians, we're not going to be judged for our sin, is still before God. 
This is the man who is the unexpected king. You know, when the prophet went to the house, you remember? Oh, surely it's this one, Lord. The Lord says, no. Surely it's this one, Lord. The Lord says, no. Finally, the prophet has to say, you got any other kids? Yeah, oh yeah, there's one out in the field with the sheep. He's the ruddy one. He's a little shepherd boy. That's the man. God does not use people that we expect, the ones that always have the right look and all the gifts that we think should make a person what they're supposed to be. David's story foreshadows the greatest story, that of the coming Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I am going to do 2 Samuel, and we've done one verse so far. <laughs> and we are, we're going to move into 2 Samuel, but I want to show you just a few things as I introduce this concept of the kingdom of God to you that the Bible says. And I want to try to do this from the book of Luke. So would you go to Luke 4? And I just want to show you what you belong to and how many times this comes up in your Bible. You remember when Jesus first started preaching? He came and he began to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. He said, it's the time. The kingdom of God is what? Is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Believe the gospel. Luke 4 this is one of the purpose statements in the Bible, Luke 4, 43. Jesus has done a bunch of healing at Capernaum and he says these words. He said to them, 4:43 of Luke, I must preach the what? The kingdom of God to the other cities also for I was sent for this purpose. Now there's very few times in your Bible when you're gonna see a purpose statement made by the Lord. This is why I came to the world. He will tell Pilate in the Gospel of John, Pilate says to him, so you're a king then? Jesus says, oh, you say rightly I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. For this reason I came into the world to bear witness of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate, in the interchange, Jesus says, you know, my servants were, would be fighting that the, those who handed me over to you, you know, this would not occur. But for right now, my kingdom is not of this realm. You're a king then? You have a kingdom? Do you remember when the wise men came? They sought out one who was born, what? King of the Jews. And they brought him three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Look at Luke chapter 8, verse 1. The king and the kingdom, the kingdom of God to which we belong. Chapter 8, verse 1 of the Gospel of Luke says, It came about soon afterwards, Luke 8, 1, that he began going from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching what? The kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. Go to Luke 11. This is the Lord's Prayer. The disciples were watching Jesus pray, and they wanted to learn what he was doing. And so he taught them these words. He said to them, Luke eleven two. when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. What's the prayer? Thy kingdom come. How many times have you guys prayed that? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, this, this is the New Testament, you guys. And, and this is what it says over and over again. Luke 16, 16. Luke, move over there for a second. Luke 16, 16 says... Jesus is speaking. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since then, the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached. 
And everyone is what? Forcing or pressing his way into it. It would appear that the kingdom of God is something that you have to enter into. It is something that you have to move into as a decision that you make as an individual. Look at Luke 17. Look at verse 21. This is confirmed in this section. Luke 17, 21 says, Nor will they say, Jesus speaking, Look, here it is, speaking of the kingdom of God, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is what? It's in your midst. Now, New Agers say, you see, the kingdom of God is in us. All you got to do is look within. Er, wrong. Sorry. The kingdom of God being in your midst means it's here. I'm here. I'm the king of the kingdom. Or other scholars would say it's represented in the apostles. In your midst means around you. It's right here, right now. In me, the king, and my servants who are part of the kingdom. Would you enter into it? Would you come into the kingdom? In Luke 18, look at verse 16. Luke 18, 16, you may say, well, how do you get into this kingdom? Jesus called for them saying, permit, 18, 16 of Luke, the children to come to me and do not hinder them for what? The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall what? Shall not enter into it at all. The kingdom of God is something that you enter into by doing what? By changing your allegiances. When you say, when you decide to become a Christian, what you say, here's the biblical prayer. You say, Jesus is what? Is Lord. If you believe that Jesus is Lord, and you confess him as Lord and believe in your heart that Jesus uh, is Lord, that he rose from the dead, you will what? You will be saved. Even what we have taken the sinner's prayer from has the idea of the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's a transfer of allegiance from one king, who's the God of this world right now? Satan. To another king, King Jesus. So you don't say to your king, uh, by the way, there's a few things in small print that I don't do. I don't do windows. I, I don't use the weed whacker. Uh, you know, I don't do this or that. No, you say, you bow before your king and say, whatever you say, that's what I will do. Give me my marching orders. In Luke 18, look down at verse 24. It says, and Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, then who can be saved? Over and over again, we can see this happening. And I want to show you uh, just a few other places and we'll move back to 2 Samuel. Go over to Luke 21. Luke 21, this is the Olivet Discourse, so it parallels Matthew 24. And for those of you who've been coming and listening to the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights, um, this will be familiar to you. But Luke 21, pick it up at verse 27, says these words. Jesus talking about his return says, Then 21, 27, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them a parable, behold, the fig tree and all the trees. 
As soon as they put forth leaves, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that what? The kingdom of God is near. Jesus said, I won't drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. You can write down Luke 22, 18. And I'm going to tell you, I want to show you one more. It's in Luke 23. It's in verse 42. It's the famous exchange between Jesus and the thief on the cross. And he turned and said to Jesus, coming to his senses, seeing the kingliness of Jesus, he said to Jesus, Luke uh, 23, 42, remember me when you, uh, when you come into your kingdom. This is all over our Bibles. The idea of the kingdom of God. The idea that King Jesus is our ruler and the one that we follow. Turn back to the book of 2 Samuel. There's a little introduction on the kingdom of God. Now you, you might say, well, Pastor Michael, then what exactly is the kingdom of God and how does one enter it? Well, I've already hinted at it and it's this. It's when you decide to change your allegiances to the Lord, his lordship in your life. When you're tired of trying to do it your way and the world's way and the devil's way and you surrender and you say, you are my king and I will do what you say. Now, some of you are wondering, well, does that mean that salvation is by works? No, that's not what it means. When you become a subject of the king, we're all in process, right? But do you guys feel like sometimes in the modern church, when an invitation is given, do you sometimes wonder if people even know what they're doing? I, I do wonder that. And I know pastors, we all mean well, and we preach a message and we try to give a succinct invitation to the king and the kingdom. And we tell people what's required. And, and the Bible does say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But the idea of belief in Greek is more than just believe intellectually. It has the idea of trust. It does have the idea of switching allegiances from the God of this world, the, the doing it your own way, which is today's philosophy pretty much, and saying, Jesus, you are my king. I will do what you say. I will obey you. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, or King, King, and not do what I say? You know, I run across people sometimes in situations where we're doing some counseling. And the, the situation is difficult. And people are wondering, what should they do? And the first question that that has to be asked by a pastor or a counselor is, are you willing to do what the Bible says despite how you feel? Are you? That's what a subject of the kingdom and the king does. They do what he says despite how they feel. Now, all of us are a work in progress, we know, and we've all got work to do. We all need grace. The kingdom of God, Romans 14, 17, this may be the only direct you know, specific definition of the kingdom of God. Write this down for your notes. Romans 14, 17 says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it is righteousness or justice. It's peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to belong to the kingdom. If you are a Christian, you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of what? Of light. From the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God's beloved son. You now have new marching orders. 
The rest of your Christian life is really about trying to find out what pleases the Lord. Romans 12, 1 and 2, we all know the verses. We can quote them. We're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. We're to be holy and pleasing to Him. We're not to be conformed to this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we might find out what the good, perfect, and pleasing will of God is. Every day when we wake up, we have a chance to bow before the king and say, what would you have me to do today? What are your marching orders for me? I, I like to envision the times when there were knights and kings and, and you know, knights would go through a process where they were a squire and, the, and they would grow and they would be taught and finally they would be knighted after a, day of, uh, a night of prayer and fasting. And they would be in service to the king and the kingdom. I like to envision myself in the morning kneeling before my king and asking him to touch me with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God with his power and, and send me out to do what he's called me to do. This is the king and this is the kingdom. This is what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw Saul, even though he was the king of Israel, blow it. And he staggered and he made mistakes. David had his moments too, but David continued to strengthen himself in the Lord. Saul died at the hands of the Philistines while David was slaughtering the Amalekites down in the south. And he was at Ziklag for two days. This is a place that the Achish, the king of the Philistines, had given to David to, to stay. Look at verse 2. And it happened on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. This appearance of the man would signal bad news. And it came about when he came to David, that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. He probably had to travel about three days from the battle in the north with the Philistines and Saul to get to Ziklag where David was. And David had just uh, rescued his family and his wives from the Amalekites who had taken them as booty and burned the village. And David went and rescued his family and he defeated the Amalekites and he did something that Saul was supposed to do. Saul was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites totally, but he refused to obey God. And Amalekites are gonna be all over this text. In fact, we're gonna, show up, we're gonna see that the man who shows up is an Amalekite. He comes on the third day. Would you note it, Bible students? On the third day. One writer says, as we read the gospel accounts in the New Testament, it's interesting to notice that after the death of Jesus, there were two days in which the future was uncertain, at least to those who were afraid and waiting, for they knew not what. It was on the third day that the next major event occurred. The New Testament writers understood Jesus' resurrection on the third day had been anticipated by the scriptures. For example, 1 Corinthians 15, 4. It is not unreasonable to suggest that the two days between the death of Saul and the emergence of David on the third day was part of this pattern, pointing to the greater David who would emerge as king, if you will, on day three in resurrection, confirmed to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Saul was dead. Hosea 13, 11 says, I gave you a king, Saul, in my anger and took him away in my wrath. God gave the people what they wanted, but he knew it was going to end badly. And he knew that the king would take, take, and take more from them. And, you know, when you, when you try to do things God's, uh, 
not God's way, but the enemy's way or the world's way, it ends up costing you more, more, and more. Have you noticed? Things look really attractive at the beginning. And so you take the bait, but you don't realize that there's a hook behind the bait. That's how the enemy works. And there's a lot of people who, you know, had all this promise and ended up dangling from a hook, sadly. So David said to this mystery man, this visitor who's now come disheveled before David, from where do you come? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did things go? David's been waiting. He doesn't know what's happened to Saul and his sons. He says, please tell me. I want news of the battle. Verse four, and he said, the people have fled from the battle. Also, many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. You can imagine David's heart must have sank, especially at the news of Jonathan. So David, so David said to the young man who told him, he said, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I mean, that's the logical question. How, do you, how did you come across this news? Who are you and how did you get this news of the death of the anointed of God? And the young man who told him uh, said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots, uh, which may be in question because up on the mountain, it would be hard for chariots to operate. And the horsemen pursued him closely. I just happened to be in this area and I saw King Saul leaning on his spear. Now, if you're David and you have some investigative uh, intellectual capabilities, kind of like an attorney, you have some questions like, well, how did you end up on the battlefield? And, and where were you when this happened? And if, the, if, the, if they're hotly pursuing Saul, how is it that you are unscathed in all of this? And you've watched the action. Who are you and where did you come from? In 1 Chronicles 10, um, there's, a, there's a report of this. So you have 1 and 2 Samuel, and then turn to your right, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. Now there's a parallel account in 2 Chronicles chapter 10, uh, I was reading Warren Wearsby this week and he was saying that you could think of, sec I'm sorry, 1 Chronicles 10 is what you want, 1 Chronicles 10. He was saying that you could think of 1 Chronicles as telling the story from the priestly point of view. Whereas Samuel and Kings is from the king's perspective, Chronicles would be more from the priestly perspective. And here's the record of what happened. We have, we have this recorded in 1 Samuel 31 and 1 Chronicles 10, and they say the same thing, but I want you to see a little bit more detail. 1 Chronicles 10.3 says, The battle became heavy against Saul. The archers overtook him, and he was wounded by the archers. 1 Chronicles 10.4 Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took his sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, verse 5, he likewise fell on his sword and died. Thus Saul died with his three sons, and all those of his household died together. There'll be more sons that we'll come to in a moment, or in later studies. When all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw they had fled, that they had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. And it came about the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, this is what they would do, that they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. Now this is going to be a little hard to take, but this is what the Bible says they did. 
So they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent messengers around the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the house of their gods, fastened his head in the house of Dagon. And when all Jabesh Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, these are ones who Saul had helped earlier, all the valiant men arose and took away the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons and brought them to Jabesh, buried their bones under the oak in Jabesh and fasted seven days. And so Saul died for his trespass, which he committed against the Lord, two of them, because of the word of the Lord, which he did not keep, so he was disobedient, and also, number two, because he asked counsel of a medium, making inquiry of it, and did not inquire of the Lord. He said the Lord wasn't speaking to him, but apparently he didn't even try. Therefore, who killed Saul? He, God, killed him and turned the kingdom to David the son of Jesse. Now, when we think about this account, go to, back to 2 Samuel and we'll start winding it down. We have some varying accounts. Um, this man is about to tell David that Saul was still alive when he came on the scene and he had to finish Saul off. Let's pick up the account in 2 Samuel 1, verse 7. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me and, he, and I said, here I am, 2 Samuel 1, verse 8. He said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. Now, who was Saul supposed to finish off in their entirety? The Amalekites. Application point. When you don't finish off the enemies in your life and you toy with them and you keep them around and you don't deal severely with the things that cause you to sin, eventually they're going to come back and get you. And it's going to be ironic if the man's story is true. It's an Amalekite that finishes off Saul, but the Amalekite shouldn't have been alive if Saul had dealt with his enemies the way God instructed him to do. We toy with sin. We leave it around. We play games with ourselves. We, we leave it there for the next indulgence, but we act like we've dealt with our sin. I know it's quiet in here, <laughs> but hey, this is kind of what we do. And then sometimes we realize, man, I've just been playing a game with myself. By the way, the Amalekites were one of the, from one of the grandsons of Esau, which is a whole nother story. Then he said to me, please stand beside me. Now, in the story, Saul's talking to the Amalekite and kill me for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him. Now, this man's before David with all the looks of, you know, grief and mourning. I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown, which was on his head, and the bracelet, which was on his arm, and I brought them to my Lord. Now, we have two different accounts. 1 Samuel 31, 1 Chronicles 10 says that Saul committed suicide, and then so did his armor bearer. This man says... No, I had to finish Saul off. Now, I'll save you the time on all the commentaries. Some people say Saul tried to commit suicide. His life was still lingering. And the Amalekite actually finished him off. But it's hard to reconcile these accounts. And critics of the Bible have said, ah, oh, this is a contradiction. We have two different accounts of this story. By the way, First and Second Samuel originally in the Hebrew Bible was one book. 
That means 2 Samuel chapter 1 is the next chapter after 1 Samuel 31. Could we imagine a writer of the Bible forgetting what he wrote a chapter before and writing down a different account? I don't think so. I don't think he, the Bible writer had a senior moment. I know we all have those and sometimes it, it can sneak up on us. It can even be a junior moment. I know some juniors who forget a lot of stuff too, but we won't go there this morning, will we? About cleaning their room and that kind of thing. But, <laughs> you know, the Bible records the lies of people accurately. Say what? <laughs> were, the, were the lies of Satan recorded in the Bible? Did Joseph's brothers lie about what happened to him to their dad? We're reading the text. We know they're lying. The Bible accurately records their lie. Did the Bible record Herod's lie to the wise men? Hey, make a careful search for the child, and when you find him, bring him to me so that I too may worship him. Uh, wrong. He wanted to what? Kill him. The man, I think we could all understand, is lying. Now, some of you say, but why? Why would he lie to this man who's going to come into the kingdom and be the king. Well, I think this man was something like a camp follower. I think he followed around the, the battle and tried to be kind of a marauder. He tried to take stuff from the dead. This did happen in the ancient world. And here's what would happen. People would die in the battlefield and these people would scavenge for stuff. And he finds the king with a crown and a bracelet. And what's he got to be thinking? This is the arch enemy of David. If I show up at David's doorstep with the crown and the bracelet, this is going to be an awesome career move for me. Probably hatched the plan in, in the moment, right? You know, there he is over the body, realizes, oh, this is my lucky day. This is like winning the lotto. King David is going to love me after this. I probably have grapes fed to me for the rest of my days. Uh, beautiful women will be fanning me. This is going to be awesome. But this man is about to make the worst career mistake of all time. Because what he doesn't realize is that David has had opportunities to kill Saul, but he would not touch him. Because Saul was God's anointed, as much as we may be confused about that. Then David took hold of his clothes when he heard the news and tore them, verse 11, a sign of grief and mourning. And also did all, so also did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan. And for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Now, can you imagine being this guy? You show up, you think, man, I got it going on. This is gonna be great. Show me where my new apartment is. And David starts tearing his clothes and says, we're not eating until evening. And you start to go, uh-oh. Uh, apparently this news is not being received as well as I thought it might. Apparently this is not a great thing. And David said to the young men, who told him, where are you from? With a gulp, I think he said, uh, I'm the son of an alien, an Amalekite. An alien would be someone who maybe attached themselves as a, a sojourner to the people of Israel. And David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Why were you not afraid to touch God's man, God's king? What has caused you to do this evil in your heart? 
And the Bible says that those who want to get rich, who are not content, they pierce themselves through with many a pang. I find this picturesque. This man's about to be pierced through because he was looking for a get-rich-quick scheme and it's going to backfire on him. And so here's what happens. David called one of the young men and said, go cut him down. So he struck him and he died. There you go. Don't you love the Bible? It's so honest. This man came with a scheme. He was a liar. But some of you are saying, but then why was he killed if he didn't really kill Saul? Well, David didn't know for sure. But David is going to say something that gives the responsibility, puts it where it belongs. David said to him, your blood is on your head. For your mouth has testified against you, saying, I've killed the Lord's anointed. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 37, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And so the man went down. Now in the time we have remaining, I'm going to read to you with very little commentary a lament that David taught the sons of Israel. David's the new king. Saul has died. Saul's been his nemesis for many, many years. But I want you to see how David mourns for the fallen heroes. David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son, verse 18. And he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. That's lost to us, but it's also known as the book of the upright. Can you imagine Saul ending up in the book of the upright? You know, this teaches us something really quick about memorial services and funerals. Sometimes we wonder, you know, why should we speak well of someone if maybe there's not a ton of good stuff to say? You know, the book of Hebrews chapter 11 uh, lauds the faith of men and others, women, who sometimes failed. Do their exploits of failure get recorded in the hall of faith? No. I think God is seeing things from heaven's perspective. There's a couple of brothers. They lived, I think, in England. They were just scoundrels. They ripped people off in business. They were just terrible to deal with. One of the brothers died. And so the other surviving brother came to a pastor in the city and he said, uh, I want you to do the funeral service for my brother and I'm willing to give you $50,000 to do it. The only condition is that you have to call him a saint. That's the only condition. Just call him a saint. 50 grand for your church. Pastor thought about it and decided to do the memorial service. And so the service commenced that day and the man was in the, the pine box there and his brother was there. And the pastor began to address the crowd and he said, this man in this box was a dirty, rotten scoundrel. He was a liar and a thief. He ripped off a bunch of people a terrible man. But next to his brother over there, he was a saint. <laughs> Thank you for the $50,000. That's a smart pastor. Oh, I've got to hurry. We're out of time. Oh, I'll tell you what. We're going we're gonna to stop right here. Let's pray. 
Father, we are so grateful for your word. Your word is alive. It tells the truth about life. It tells the truth about battle. It tells the truth about what people do, lies and manipulation. It tells the truth about failure, but it tells the truth about hope. Saul and Jonathan are going to be sung about and really honored. And Jonathan had a lot of honorable qualities, but Saul, you know, thinking about his life, there may not have been a lot of positives to focus on, but David is showing as one of his first acts as king, he's showing the people how to have grace. He's showing the people how to mourn. At the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus wept. You wept over the city of Jerusalem. And you're not willing that any perish, but all come to repentance. And Lord, thank you that you are so patient with me. That you don't focus on my failures. You're a God of grace and mercy. You're the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you knew what you were getting when you signed me up. And I entered into your kingdom. And thank you that you are so patient. And as we see the new king ascending to the throne, he's going to honor the man who was his chief nemesis for years. He's going to show him grace and focus on the good things about him. And Lord, we, we tend, we're going to confess, we tend to do that at memorial services and we tend not to do it when people are alive. Oh God, forgive us. For how many times we focus on people's weaknesses instead of the beauty of who they are and seeing them through your eyes. That's something that David teaches us right from the get-go, right as he ascends to the throne. And it's something that we know is true of you, the greater David, that, you know, this, this David, who is the human one, said, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? You know our frame. You know that we're dust. But as far as the east is from the west... So far have you removed our transgressions from us. The king of glory came and died on that cross for us. Brothers and sisters, if you're part of that kingdom, would you just think for a moment of what your king did for you? He came to die, to open the way. If you've not met him, if, if he's not your king right now, make him your king. Swear allegiance to him. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe the king came down from heaven. I believe the king went to the cross. I believe the king conquered the grave. I believe the king is at the right hand of God the Father, ever living to intercede for his people, for his kingdom. Lord, I want to seek first your kingdom. Pray it if it's you. Pray it if you're a believer right now. I want to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Please add to me those things that you promise. Make me the man, the woman, the boy or girl that you've called me to be, the young adult that you've called me to be. Change me, Lord. Make me more like the king. Give me a heart after God. That's what David had, but Jesus had a heart after God because he is God. Conform us more into the image of of the great King, Lord. Do a mighty work. Let your Holy Spirit move, breathing life and perspective and hope and faith 
and diligence and perseverance into your people as we follow the, the rule and reign and leading of our King. In Jesus' holy name I pray and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Would you stand?